Thank you, Bruce, and thank all of you for coming. It's really quite an honor to be with you and to mark a hundred years. That's a remarkable thing. We just started a little school at our church, and I've prayed for 140 years out, because our church is 140 years old this year, and I just thought, Lord, was anybody praying for me 140 years ago? I, I wonder. I'll bet they were. And uh, so I I've been praying for our little school 140 years from now, if God doesn't send the Lord Jesus before then. And perhaps you'll have another 100 years as well, but it's awesome to me to be a part of marking a hundred years of God's faithfulness on an institution. Let me pray with you and ask the Lord's help before we move forward. Father in heaven, I ask that you would help me to spread a passion for your supremacy in all things, for the joy of all peoples. And I ask that you would cause your name to be hallowed in this room and through these brothers and sisters in this city and state and nation and world. I ask that Christ would be magnified in our bodies, whether by life or by death. And I ask that you would help me to make plain what it is to proclaim Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that you would not only make it plain, but that you would embed it in the hearts and minds and mouths of those who are here so that Christ is proclaimed wherever they are. So come and help me, I pray now, and all of us. Give us ears to hear and guide my mouth, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite you, if you uh, have a Bible and can see it, you know, it, it wouldn't bother me at all if lights went up in this house, but I don't want to break the rules or anything. I really like to see the people I'm, I'm speaking to, but uh, look at that. Let there be light. Thank you. Galatians chapter 3, but before I read you the first five verses, let me tell you why I'm reading them and, and where we're going. Um, this is a message about proclaiming Christ, and I have five points. The aim of that preaching or proclamation, the content of it, the manner of it, the preparation for it, and the act of doing it. Those are the five steps that we'll, we'll, we'll take. But before we get to those five steps, as I was pondering yesterday, I really want to make clear that all the Bible makes plain and all my experience makes plain that proclaiming Christ without the Holy Spirit is in vain. I don't awaken the faith in unbelievers. I don't strengthen the faith of believers. I don't increase the holiness of believers. I don't empower believers. If I don't proclaim Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what I want to do is set the stage of those five steps by making sure we all understand how crucial that link is between proclaiming Christ 
and experiencing in it the power of the Holy Spirit in doing it so that you aren't left with the impression that if you were just gifted enough or powerful enough or had the right personality to proclaim him, you could make things happen of an eternal kind. You, you can't. There are a few things more plain after 31 years in the pastorate for me than that I cannot make happen the one thing I want to happen. I can make lots of things happen. You can grow a church without the Holy Spirit, but who wants to do that? I want to see people utterly revolutionized from the inside out, a a new kind of human being with a new kind of faith and passion, power and zeal and love and sacrifice and I can't make that happen. I can't make anybody into that kind of person. Only God does that, and therefore it's crucial that we get this connection between the Holy Spirit and proclaiming Christ. So, this message is really, if you expanded the title, it would be something like uh, proclaiming Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, let's... uh, Let's read it. These first five verses of Galatians 3. Have your ears up for the connection between Christ proclaimed and the power of the Holy Spirit. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, just pause there. Surely he's not talking about flannel graph or a video when he says publicly portrayed as crucified. He means when I preached to you the gospel, when I spoke to you, I did it in such a way that it was as though your, your heart's eyes were seeing Christ crucified. Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. So there's the proclamation of Christ and done in such vivid characters that they actually saw him, as it were, with the eyes of their heart crucified for them. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit? So now we move from the the proclamation of of a vividly portrayed crucified Christ to the Spirit. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? And the answer to that is no. Or by hearing, namely that message, with faith? And the answer to that is yes. So the Holy Spirit was received the first time. That's regeneration. The Holy Spirit came on the the wings, on the spear of the Word, and And that shaft, that spirit-driven shaft sank into their heart. Word and spirit sank. And they received the spirit by the word. Verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, it was the spirit who did that on the wings of the word. Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? 
Does he who, now watch, it's no longer did you receive, this is present tense, do you go on receiving a supply? Does he who goes on supplying the Spirit to you, goes on working miracles, and there, I'm, I don't want to narrow down miracles to any one thing, whether it's any apostolic signs and wonders, or whether it's just the, the kinds of things that only God can do. Just let it be broad. I'm, I read this as what only God can do in the ministry, I want done. And he says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does that happen by the works of the law? And the answer to that is no. Or by the hearing with faith? And the answer to that is yes. So, the initial reception of the Holy Spirit when Christ was portrayed, proclaimed, came by hearing with faith. Faith was awakened by that word, and the Holy Spirit awakening faith was received into the heart. And then, and this is what pastors who are not only evangelists who want to see people come to faith the first time, but they want week after week, they want people to go on receiving empowerment from the Holy Spirit, transformation and sanctification by the Holy Spirit, marriages made different and parenting made different and workplaces made different and sexual lives and money lives and power lives made different. That happens by the empowering of the Spirit, not by works of the law, but same way. By hearing what? The proclamation of Christ with faith. So I hope it's plain now how I understand this. That when I'm, when I'm speaking to you about proclaiming Christ, I am speaking about something that can only be done in the power of the Holy Spirit if it is to produce the receiving of the Spirit the first time in regeneration, and the ongoing supply of the Holy Spirit by which miracles are wrought in the lives of our people. Both of them come by our people hearing that proclamation with faith that is awakened by that proclamation. That's the foundation for everything else that I'm going to say now in these minutes. When we proclaim Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is unleashed in our people to crucify sin and to magnify Christ. Those are the two things I'm after. You could say it a lot of different ways, but I'm saying it those two ways because I want to link up with two texts just to confirm and illustrate what I'm saying about how this works. Look at two texts with me, and then we'll start into our five points. The first is John 16, 14. You know this, um, 13 and 14. When the Spirit of truth comes, so Jesus is talking, and he says he's going to send the Spirit. When the Spirit of truth comes, and then down to the end of verse 14, he will glorify me. J.I. Packer's book, um, Keep in Step with the Spirit is the best book I've ever read on the Holy Spirit, I think. At least the best accessible book, leaving John Owen out of account. <laughs> Nobody can understand Owen hardly, but I love him. This book said that this verse right here, 614, 1614, 
is probably the most important statement about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. His passion, the passion of the Holy Spirit is to make much of the second person of the Trinity. He is sent into the world to open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the magnificence of Christ and thus glorify Him. So, the Spirit and the Word come together and the Spirit works. I, I picture them sometimes as, as uh, these, these jets that fly. I don't know what you have in Australia. We have these blue angels in America, these four jets that fly, you know, in tandem like 10 feet apart from each other like this. And I, I picture the, the Word of God flying through the mouth of a preacher and the Holy Spirit right here just going like this. And wherever that Word is flying faithfully, the Holy Spirit is right there doing His, doing his work to make a place for that Word. But if the, if the proclamation of Christ lands and the preacher starts doing something else and replaces the magnificence of Christ, the Holy Spirit's just going to go off like this. He is not interested in empowering self-talk. He's not interested in empowering little stories. He's not interested in empowering just anecdotes about this. He, he wants to make much of Jesus. And therefore, I promise you that if you get up and make much of Christ biblically, you've got this jet flying in with you immediately. He loves it. He was sent into the world to magnify the Son. So if you say to him, I'm going to magnify the Son this morning, he will say, I'm with you. I am right there on your side to help you in that. Which is why proclaiming Christ is so essential to experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's my first illustration of the connection between Proclaiming Christ and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. John 16, 14, the Holy Spirit is given to magnify Christ. Therefore, wherever you put magnifying words on your lips and you say, I'm going to find ways with my mind and my mouth to make much of Jesus, the Holy Spirit's right there to put boosters behind it all the time. Now, here's the other one, the second text that illustrates this, namely Romans 8, 13. I said that when the Holy Spirit empowers the proclamation of Christ, not only is Christ magnified, but sin is crucified or killed. So you know this, John Owen wrote the mortification of sin to unpack this verse alone, Romans eight thirteen. If uh, we, we are debtors not to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if, now watch this, by the Spirit... You kill, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So take that little phrase. By the Spirit, we, our people, kill sin. How does that work? Because that's what we want to happen week in and week out. Our people walk out Monday morning, they experience some temptation of greed or pride or lust or anger or bitterness, and you want them to kill it, kill it, and in its place have love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness. That's what you want to happen. And you tell them, by the Spirit, kill it. What, do they know what you mean? What does that mean? How do you do it? By the Spirit, like, is he a gun? 
And do I pull his trigger? Well, they didn't have guns, but they did have swords. Is, is, it, is it an accident that the one weapon in our arsenal from Ephesians 6 with which you kill people is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? Is that an accident exegetically that these two texts come together so amazingly? By the Spirit, put to death this. Well, well how do you do that? Well, the one murderous weapon that you have, you don't, you don't helmet people to death. You don't shield them to death. You use a sword to kill them. That's what swords are for, killing. And not people. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. You're going to stick the devil with this, and you're going to stick your sins with this. So, the way I understand, by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body is here with faith some Christ-exalting truth or promise, believe it, and stick your sin with it. So, if your temptation is to be greedy, like you're going to lie on some report, tax return, to save yourself a few hundred dollars, that's a temptation. You need to kill that. How would you do that by the Spirit? You would pause and you would say, Oh God, you have said, be content with what you have. For God has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. You're on my side. I believe you. Stick it. And you kill that temptation right there with the promise of God. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. The the work of the Holy Spirit is not like a gas kind of producing amorphous feelings with no connection to the Word of God. You you take the Word, the sword of the Spirit, which in this case was the promise from Hebrews 13, 5, and 6, and you hear it with faith. I'm getting that from Galatians 3, 5. You hear it with faith, and the Holy Spirit at that moment is supplied. Does he who supplies the Holy Spirit to you do so by works of the law? No, but by hearing that promise with faith, you're dead, greed. And I'm free. That's, that's the way I want my people to live, which now means, I think we're ready to start the message, which now means that we must proclaim Christ in all of its riches, his riches, so that they will have something to believe moment by moment with which they can kill sin and magnify Christ. Okay, so I said there were five points, and here they are. The aim of preaching Christ, the content of the message of preaching Christ, the manner of proclaiming. I'm using proclaim and preach interchangeably. The preparation for that and the, and the act of doing it. So let's take these one at a time. The aim. Now, that, the answer to that has already been given, so we can be brief here. Um, 
you know, aim, when you talk about aim, you can talk about different levels of aim. You can say the aim of everything is to glorify God, and, and you can say with 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that comes from a, a pure heart, a good conscience, and faith unfeigned. Or you could say down here, the aim is faith. Now, that, that's what I'm going to say, but you understand that I understand there, there are more ultimate aims, love, glorifying God. But let me just linger with you. When you, when you stand up before your people, I think conscious to your mind should be the aim. I want my people to walk out of here deeper and stronger in faith in God and His Word, and particularly His Christ-exalting Word and His gospel-based Word of promise. I want their faith to be stronger. I want them to be like Gideon. Gideon's just been on my mind a lot lately because we've got a big challenge in front of us at our church to raise lots of money and there's a big recession and all kinds of obstacles are in the way and I just love Gideon because God comes to Gideon and says, there are not enough obstacles in the way of my accomplishing my purpose, so let's create some obstacles. And so send 22,000 of your men home. 300 would be a good enough obstacle. And then God gives him a dream, you know, down there, a loaf of barley bread goes in and knocks down a tent. This is really a funny story. And uh, they say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And Gideon overhears them talking and says, he's given the whole army into our hands. Let's go. 300 of us against hordes and hordes of Midianites. That's the way I want my people to walk out on Sunday morning. Valiant, confident that they're nobody and he is absolutely magnificent. So, right here in Galatians still, verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by hearing with faith? Yes. So that's what I'm after, faith. I want them to hear the Word of God with faith. I want the the Word to awaken faith. Now, The reason, I suppose, that I'm lingering on faith here instead of some other aim is because I want to make sure that while I'm here in Australia, I leave a few deposits behind of the things that have meant most to me over my ministry years. And one of them is this, that I think we would do well to think deeply about the nature of faith, saving faith, the nature of it. Because until you go deep with the nature of saving faith, you don't see as clearly as you might how it is so powerful to transform people. And the thing that we miss often is that faith is not mainly a decision and it's not mainly an affirmation of a truth. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead is an aspect of faith. It's not the main aspect because the devil believes that. How could it be main if the devil believes it? Now we share the main thing in common with the devil. Obviously, believing that Jesus rose from the dead or that he died for sinners can't be the main thing in faith because the devil believes that. So it's really crucial that we get main, main. And John said, uh, to as many as received him, comma, 
who believed in his name. So that comma is probably, they're the same. They're apposition. Received him who believed in his name. To them gave you power to become the children of God. So I'm going to take the word receiving now and let that unpack the nature of faith. And then a new question arises, receive as what? And traditionally in, in evangelicalism, we say, Savior and Lord. And that's right. He is both, and both are crucial, and neither is enough. At least in my context in America, and I, I think it's very much like Australia, very secular, very up-to-date, and uh, to talk about receiving Jesus as Savior and Lord misses something essential. I must receive him as my treasure. Whenever I talk nowadays, if I'm talking to anybody, unbeliever, believer, and I'm talking about what's faith, what it is to be saved, how do you receive him, I say receive him as as your savior. You need a savior, you're a sinner. You need a substitute who died for you, rose again. You need an alien righteousness. You need him as a savior. And you need a Lord. You don't know what you're doing. You need a guide and a king and a Lord. He's got absolute authority. You've got to take him that way or leave him. He won't be negotiated with. And you need to receive him as the supreme treasure of your life. Because that's what's driving these people here in Brisbane. What they're driven by is not lords and saviors mainly. It's treasures. They treasure the approval of man. They treasure the power of money. They treasure the sweetness of leisure. They treasure entertainment. They've got these passions and their longings inside. And they're just looking for, oh, give me satisfaction. If we do not fight that fire with a superior fire, we'll lose it. Savior and Lord alone do not compensate for a passion for a treasure that satisfies my soul. They are essential. The treasure lies in them. But the treasure is He. And it is an emphasis that I want to leave with you in a few texts. Philippians 3.8, faith says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's what faith says. Faith says, everywhere I look in Brisbane, garbage compared to you. That's what faith says. So that's what I want to be awakened in my people. I want them to so see Christ that they are embracing him as Savior, embracing him as Lord, and embracing him as the supreme treasure of their life. And when that is happening, I say, they are believing. They are receiving him for who he is. So here's my restatement of the aim of of preaching. When I said the aim is faith in our people, in the power of the Holy Spirit, I would say now, the aim of preaching, this is the way I consciously think on Sunday morning. Last Sunday, I finished preaching through John 10. I've been preaching through John for, I think, four years now, and and I hope in the next three years I I can finish it. But I have the same aim every, every Sunday. Different text, but same aim. 
a spirit-given treasuring of Christ as supremely precious. A spirit-given treasuring of Christ as supremely precious. And if you wanted me to unpack doctrinally what that would mean, I would pour it all out of supremely. Because my argument last Sunday was when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, he meant it to the max, to the metaphysical max. Supremely really means supremely. So that's the answer to my first point. The aim of proclaiming Christ is that he be treasured as supremely precious, which is in my vocabulary, and I believe I can defend it from the New Testament, it means believe him. Receive him. To as many as received him for what he is, namely, supremely valuable. To as many as received him who believed in his name, he gave the power to become the children of God. Number two, the content of preaching follows pretty clearly. These, these all build on each other. If that's the aim, if you're trying to proclaim Christ in such a way, in the power of the Holy Spirit, that there is awakened in your people a treasuring of Christ as supremely valuable, then what should you say in your preaching? Well, you should point out as many things about him that are supremely valuable as you can. Here's the way Paul says it in Ephesians 3, 8. To me, it was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So if you were to ask Paul, what are you doing? What's the content of your preaching? He would say, the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's what I proclaim. So wherever you are in the Bible, go there eventually. Something magnificent about all that God is for us in Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. You know, if you do a word study on that riches of, you find texts like the riches of his kindness, Romans 2. The riches of his grace, Ephesians 2. The riches of his glory, Romans 9, Ephesians 1, 3, Colossians 1. The riches of his glory. Why don't you turn with me to 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. I'm going to linger here for just a minute to make sure that you at least see the direction I I go in one of the most um, ministry-shaping passages in the Bible for me. Maybe they have been for you or would be for you. 2 Corinthians 3.18 down through 4.6. And what I'm after here is the content of the preaching of Christ. The content of Christ proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, I want my people transformed. How do they get transformed? 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face... Beholding the glory of the Lord. That's the glory of Jesus. So there, that's what I'm proclaiming. If this is going to happen for your people, you have to do this for them. 
they are beholding the glory of the Lord. Where, when, how? Well, I, I placarded Christ crucified for you. I, I held up Christ in as many of his riches and dimensions as I could over the years. And therefore, as I leave, your blood is not on my hands. I have delivered the whole counsel of God centered on Jesus. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. That's how it happens into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So how do your people get transformed? Beholding the glory of the Lord, they are transformed. I, I don't have a lot of techniques. I, my, my, my life has to stay pretty simple because my, my brain gets, it, it short circuits if too many ideas come into it at one time. They have to immediately connect. Or I just, I can't handle it. So I'm just constantly pushing things down to the center and pushing things to what's, what's ultimate. And, and so I have some pretty simple ideas of how my people change, namely by seeing Jesus. Because that's what it says. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed. I don't have any other keys. I have lots of ideas. I mean, I can write a whole book on beholding Jesus. So, so you can say lots about that, but it's, it's really simple. Preach Christ, proclaim Christ with the aim that they would treasure him as supremely valuable. How? By continually finding ways to unfold the, the riches of his glory. Because beholding his glory, people are changed. That's the way it works. Where is that glory seen most clearly? Drop down to verse 4 of the next chapter. You know chapter divisions don't, don't mean anything. They get in the way usually. They mess people up. So just ignore verses and chapter divisions. The God of this age, this is chapter 4, verse 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Now, see, this is canceling out verse 18. The devil wants to cancel out verse 18 of chapter 3 at any cost because he knows if people see the glory of Jesus, they're going to be changed into the image of Christ, and that messes up his strategies big time. So he wants to blind them. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So if you ask me, where is the glory of Christ seen at its essence or apex? Answer, gospel. In the gospel. So my ministry is going to be centering on the glory of Christ, and that means centering on the gospel. Now, if we had another hour, I'm going to pack into about three minutes here an hour's worth of gospel explanation. What is the gospel? And, and I have six, I think, levels, statements, aspects of the gospel. I'm just going to bang them off because I want you to know what, is, what do you mean by he, his glory is seen most clearly, its apex is found in the gospel. Here, the, here my six pieces. If any one of these six is gone, there's no gospel. Number one, the gospel is a plan. And I'm getting these mainly from 1 Corinthians 15. I delivered you as of first importance what I also received. 
that Christ, was, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So when, when it says according to the Scriptures, it means there was a plan. So a long time ago, God had an idea to do the gospel. So the gospel is a plan. If you say there was no plan, he thought that up on the spur of the moment, there's no gospel. Number two, it's not only a plan, it's an event. Christ died in history. If he didn't die in history and rise in history, there's no gospel. It is an event. You take the event quality out of it, zero gospel. Number three, he accomplished something at that moment when he died. He accomplished something at that moment before you, who would later benefit from it, ever were on the scene. For example, sin was punished. Righteousness was completed and perfected. Wrath was satisfied. Those happened before you were ever born. They were accomplished in the gospel or in the act, in the event. Number four, they are freely offered to faith. I asked Don Carson, saw his name up there, really happy about that. Don's been to Australia 60 times, I think somebody told me. Good night. He's made of another metal than I am. I can manage once every 15 years maybe, but good night. I'm still, what time is it, you know? But anyway, he's coming, and I'm really happy. I asked him one time, Don, would you say that the free offer of Christ crucified is an essential component of the gospel itself? He said, absolutely. And I agree. And the reason is this. If Christ accomplished something for you, and then you come, I come to you and say, here's what he accomplished for you. And you say, what must I do to be saved? And I say, work hard. That's not gospel. So the free offer, that it's for faith, it's for faith alone, has to be a part of what the gospel is. It is a free accomplishment. You receive it only by faith. So that's number four. And then five. It is applied to you. Great old book by John Murray, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And what that means is when you come to faith, that purchase is now yours. Your sins are forgiven. That righteousness now counted as yours. You are justified. That wrath removed now is yours. God propitiated and totally reconciled to you. And all now comes home to you. And that application to you by the Holy Spirit is the gospel. You take that away, you're going to hell. There's no gospel. Number six. Now, pause. In my growing up and most of the places where I hear the gospel preached, that's where people stop, those five pieces. Not much controversial about those, I wish. But historically, there's not much controversial about those. A plan an event, an accomplishment, an offer, a Holy Spirit application to your life. And, and we're, we're just sore and we're singing songs, we're celebrating. I'm forgiven, I'm justified, I'm reconciled. End of sermon. And, 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 and it isn't the end. Because I come along, remember, with my brain who has to get everything down to the main thing. I say, who cares about being forgiven? Why would you want to be forgiven? You know there are wrong answers to that question. Like, well, I don't want to go to hell. 
if, if I insult my wife when I get up in the morning because I'm angry about something and, and just on the spur of the moment I spit out some unkind word and I know as soon as I've done it, I've sinned, I've wrecked the relationship for the time being. And then I go downstairs and I'm working in the kitchen and she comes down and there's ice in the air and she's got her back to me at the sink. What, what, do, what do I need? I need forgiveness. Why? Now, what kind of a husband would say, well, because when I go to work, I don't like having a guilty conscience. Wait a minute. Does this have anything to do with her? Excuse me? There's a relationship here that's been wrecked. You see what I'm getting at? All of those glorious applications, forgiveness, justification, reconciliation, wrath removed, are going somewhere or not. Are you man-centered or God-centered? Is it terminating on you and your good feelings? Or are you... Here's the key text. Number six. Six in the gospel. First Peter 3, 18. He suffered once. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. That's the gospel. So I wrote a whole book on it. I just get so worked up about this. I wrote a book called God is the Gospel, which of course is liable with all kinds of misunderstandings. But what, what if you just stop? I just want to be forgiven. I just want to be justified. I just don't want anybody mad at me. I just don't want to be in hell. I just like to be with mom and dad in heaven. S- excuse me? This is about God. Do you want Him? Would it be the end of your soul's quest to say, I have you, I have you now, I'm home with the Father. That's the end of the gospel. That's what makes the good news good news ultimately. So all that, I said I'd do it in three minutes, it took longer than three minutes. The, the gospel, those six things are where you see the riches of the glory of Christ most fully displayed. So a uh, a ministry that is aiming to bring people to treasure Christ as supremely valuable, that's point one, the aim, will lift up Christ and his riches and his glory and his worth and his value in a thousand ways revealed in the Bible centered on the gospel. Because that's where, according to verse 4, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ shines. Number three, the manner of preaching. Look at verse, I don't know if your Bibles are still open there in uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, but look at verse 5. For we do not proclaim ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. The word proclaim there is keruso, kerusamen. So linger with me on that word for a moment. Why, why does Paul use that word for the manner of preaching? He doesn't 
Caruso is not didasco. It's not teaching. It's not Lego. It's not Laleo. It's not Katangelo. It's not Yuangalizo. Those all have their peculiar nuances, but so does Caruso. And in 2 Timothy 4.2, which is probably the most clear command for pastors to be preachers, to be proclaimers, you get this. And it, it's, it's um, the introduction to this imperative in 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2 is unlike anything in the Bible that I know of. I don't know of any sentence like this in all the Bible of how he piles up preparatory words for the imperative he's about to give. So here it is. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word and the word is keruxo keruxon ton logon you know what keruxo means it's a herald it's what it's what in in that day a person did hear ye hear ye hear ye a message from the emperor I declare that everyone who bows a knee and swears fealty to the emperor will be remitted of his treachery. So that's what a, that's what a Caruso does. A Kirux does that. He heralds. Now, I'm in Australia, and uh, I don't know how you think about this. I've, I've, I think I've been in a church service in Australia one time in 1996, but I don't know how you think about this, but I, I, I get little winds that there's some different kind of thinking over here about this, about the nature of preaching, the nature of worship services, which may not even exist. I don't like that idea. Uh, I really believe in preaching, not just teaching, because the Bible does. And here is why. We have just seen that the aim of proclaiming Christ is to treasure him as supremely valuable. And we've seen there that the content must be lifting up and and making plain and magnifying the riches of his glory. And of course, all of that must be understood by the mind And therefore, there has to be a kind of communication that fits these two things. We have to see him and understand him with our brains, and we have to passionately embrace him as our supreme treasure. And there's a way of talking that honors those. It's called preaching. It's called caruso. And if you you start... If you reject that, if you say, I don't, want to, no, I don't want that emotional stuff, and I don't want that treasuring stuff, and this is just an exhortation, and this is just a teaching time, and this is just a fellowship time, or this is just an edifying time, you're going to lose massive dimensions of what's supposed to happen when the gathered church comes. People are made in the image of God to see Christ understand him clearly with their minds and not be jerked around by emotions. 
and they are to feel him so massively they could explode because he is infinitely valuable. He is infinitely precious. Small emotions for Jesus is blasphemy. It's so out of step with who he is and what he values. And preaching is designed by God to be the kind of communication that pulls all those together. Right thinking about him and right awakening feelings for him. That's preaching. So I've got a name for it. I can write a book on this someday. God gives me life. Expository exaltation is my name of preaching. That's E-X-U-L-T-A-T-I-O-N, not E-X-A-L. My job on Sunday morning, week after week, is to open this book and expose what is here and exalt over it. If any of my staff says, after we worship for 30 minutes, Pastor John's going to preach, I say, whoa, no way, I'm worshiping right now, right now. This is worship which means I'm seeing him, I'm loving him, I'm extolling him, I'm lifting it up, I'm trying to make it plain to your minds and talk about it in a way that has some resemblance to its value, some little resemblance to its massive value. So I don't know how Australians are about that. British people are kind of strange about that. And, of course, Americans, they get a bad name because there are a lot of wackos in America. (laughs) Expository exaltation. A spirit-filled preacher should see Christ clearly. If he checks out on his mind and does sloppy exegesis, it's not the spirit at work. He's being taken over by his hormones. And the spirit-filled preacher not only sees clearly with his mind, but he, he savors Christ deeply and exults over the word. So that's number three. The manner of preaching is expository exaltation. Because if Christ is to be um, treasured for who he really is, people have to know who he is. This has to be a school-type place. Lots of thinking, lots of studying, which now moves me to my number four, the preparation for preaching. Um, Where does lucid exposition and authentic exaltation come from? It comes from spirit-given thinking, and spirit-given praying. Spirit-given thinking and spirit-given praying. Just to illustrate each of those briefly. Thinking. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7 goes like this. Paul to Timothy. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. I take that as a personal command from the Lord to me. Think over what Paul says. 
Think over it. Think, 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 think. I spend most of my sermon preparation thinking. My paper is open on the desk. My computer program, Accordance, is open in front of me. And uh, my Bible is over here. I've got books over here. I'm surrounded by thinking stuff. I've got a pen in my hand, which is where my brains are usually. And I'm doodling. I'm drawing circles and lines. And I'm banging my head. And I'm thinking, God, I don't get it. I don't see how this relates to that. I don't understand what that word means in relation to that word. Help me, please. And I'm thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking. I think pastors have to outthink everybody in their church. They've got to be ahead of them all. Now think ahead, think ahead. They're going to think of all the objections that are going to be raised out there, or at least some key ones. And people love to have their pastors successfully outthink them when it comes to the questions that are raised. I had a young woman pay me one of the best compliments I ever heard. It was a long, long time ago. <laughs> she said, you know what I like about your preaching, Pastor John? As soon as I think of a problem with what you just said, you pose the problem and go ahead answering it. I said, that's exactly the way my mind tries to work. I want to think clearly about what God said because Paul said to. This is not a personality thing. I'll read it again. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, the paradox is, some people would say, you're saying you should think because you don't need to have any help from the Holy Spirit. That's the opposite of what it says. It says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give understanding. It doesn't say, the Lord will give understanding, therefore don't think. Or think, because the Lord's not going to give you anything and you've got to get it yourself. Paul puts them together. Oh, that we would have pastors who keep these together. Think over what I say, for in and through that sanctified thinking, God's going to show you. You know, God didn't have to leave us a book. He didn't have to. He could have done it all directly. He said, I'll skip the book. That's just going to cause a lot of problems. We can interpret this book a lot of different ways. Let's just have direct communication every time a sermon is preached. I just come straight to pastors, tell them what to say, and then go out and say it. He could have done it that way. He didn't. He did say there will be literature. You've got to learn to read to preach. You have to learn to read, to preach. Or at least somebody has to learn to read, to preach, to tell you, if you're illiterate, what to preach. Prayer. Let's just get really practical here. Um, a lot of pastors out there, I'm sure. How do you do this, guys? How do you, how do you pray? And, and my answer is before, middle, after, during, every 30 seconds, help me, help me, help me, help me, guard me from pride, guard me from the fear of man, guard me from confusion, guard me from rabbit trails, oh, help me, help me in the choice of words, help me in the understanding, help me in what illustrations I pulled in, help me, help me, help me. (laughs) This is not just at the beginning of the day. It's like every few minutes as you're doing your sermon preparation, you're crying out for divine guidance. I have, um, I have uh, an acronym, I-O-U-S. It goes like this. I incline my heart to your testimonies. 
This is the way I'm praying to God most every morning. I-O-U-S, incline my heart to your testimonies, Psalm 119.36. So that means God, sometimes I get up and I don't feel like reading my Bible. And I'm so sorry. Would you now incline my heart? Would you push it? Just incline my heart toward your testimonies. Second, O, open my eyes that I may be, see wonderful things out of your word. Psalm 119.18, open my eyes. Because I, I now I'm standing or kneeling over the word and I'm just seeing black marks on a page and nothing's happening. What do you do? God, please, open the eyes of my heart that I might see something precious, something valuable, something that moves me, stirs me, grips me, holds me. Psalm 119.18. You, I owe you, Unite my heart to fear your name. I was praying this one this morning, and the Lord gave me a new. That comes from Psalm 86, 11. Unite my heart to fear your name. I, I've usually thought of this in terms of my heart is fragmented. Like, am I going to fall asleep during my talk this morning because of the jet lag? That would be one thing that goes into my mind. Another, will I be able to make it plain? Will I be able to stay in my time limit? Uh, will anybody care? Will they understand? Uh, you know, just... You know, just, just all kinds of crazy thoughts, just fragmenting your mind. And, and you want it to get it together. Just unite my heart. And this other thought, I believe, is also implied. Don't you just hate it when either you're preparing to preach or you're preaching and there's suddenly two of you. One is doing it and the other's watching you do it. And the one who's watching you do it is wondering how it's going. And suddenly there are two of you. And you know when that happens, and it's happening right now, because <laughs> I'm talking about it, it's like don't think of white elephants, right? Um, when, when it happens, it's very, very disempowering because you become, you, la you lack integrity. There's two of you. One is preaching, the other is watching you preach. And the one who's watching you preach is assessing the one who's preaching and either liking it and becoming proud or not liking it and becoming discouraged. And, and in either way, you just feel utterly distracted. So we pray when we're down in our basement praying for the service before we preach regularly, we pray, God, give us the miracle of self-forgetfulness. I just don't want to think about me. I don't want to think positively about me. I don't want to think negatively about me. I don't want to think about me at all. I want to think about them and you and the connection and the glorious things you might be doing here. So when I pray, unite my heart, I don't just mean keep it from being fragmented into all those kinds of distracting thoughts, but I mean let there be just one John Piper, the one who's doing it, not the one who's watching him do it. S-I-O-U-S satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad in you. I pray for satisfaction in the word and in what I'm preaching and in the God I preach. Well, I mean, what a horrible curse on a ministry when we stand up and begin to speak and our hearts are not there. We just, we don't want to be doing what we're doing. We don't love what we're saying. And I, I want to thank the Lord publicly that 
the way God has set up my life, and this is true almost uniformly, and I can only give him thanks, is that my battles with depression and discouragement have almost always lifted on the weekend for the word. And I wrote in one of my books that I could be so discouraged. I wrote this on thing on the, one of the first pages of Desiring God that there are, there are points. So I, was, I was in my mid-40s when I wrote that book. I'm 65 now. And I, I said, I can get so discouraged. I want to sit down on the grass between the garage and the house or go to Nokomis Lake. And I have sat there and been so discouraged. I can't think of my children's names. I have known really deep discouragement, almost paralyzing depression. And God has never let it carry through to the Lord's day. Isn't that amazing? It could descend again on Monday for all I know, but I have always walked into the pulpit loving what he has given me to say. I just consider that an absolutely amazing work of God. So I'm loving being here with you. I'm just sweating like a loon up here. That's the only only thing that makes me uncomfortable right now. I should probably take off this coat, but that's okay. We're almost done. One more. Number five. You don't even know what a loon is, do you? (laughs) They don't sweat. I don't know why I said that. (laughs) Number five is the, the act of preaching or the delivery of the message. The act of preaching. How do you preach Christ by the Spirit? 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. Whoever speaks, let him speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So what I want to know is, How do I speak slash serve in the power that God supplies? This is almost like Romans 8, 13, right? Put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. And now this is let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies. What does that feel like? What does it feel like to proclaim Christ in the power of another? Right now it feels to me like I'm doing this. I'm doing this. My hands, my voice, my eyes. I'm thinking, I'm talking, I'm feeling. It's a lot of me here. Am am I doing it? Is this happening? Let him who serves, serve in the strength that God supplies. Do you do that? How do you do that? What does that feel like? And I'll just close um, with this um, acronym that I use. We were walking down the steps, wherever we came in here, over there. And as we were coming down the steps, I'm going through this in my head. A-P-T-A-T, APTAT. I have used this for 25 plus years. I say it sitting on the, on the pew minutes before I get up to speak virtually every time. APTAT. And I'll just run through it with you. This is what I think you do in order to preach in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let him who serves serve in the power that God supplies so that in everything God may get the glory through Jesus Christ. A. Admit that you can do nothing. John 15, 11. No, 15, 5. 
John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So I say to the Lord, Lord, you know, I have prepared, I have thought, but when it comes to what I want to see happen in this church, I cannot make it happen. I can do nothing. In fact, I can't breathe without you. I can't think without you. I can't feel without you. I can't stand up without you. This building will fly apart if you don't hold the molecules together. I can't do, we can't do anything without you. I say it as an act of worship to you, and I admit it. A, I admit it. That's the way I start. Second, P. I pray for help. And then that may be whatever I want to see God do that Sunday in particular, but here I'll illustrate with Luke eleven thirteen: Ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and to everyone who knocks the door is open. For which of you who has a son who asks him for an egg would give him a serpent, or give, who asks for a fish would give him a serpent, and who asks for an egg would give him a scorpion. We're in Luke, not Matthew. Who asks him for an egg would give him a scorpion. If then you who are evil know how to give good things to your children, will not the Father give the Holy Spirit? It says in Matthew, good things. Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So I'm asking you right now, Father, I need the Holy Spirit. This is P, Aptat. Grant me and this people and these worship leaders a fullness of your Holy Spirit because you promised, you promised that you love to give him to your children who ask, seek, and knock. And I'm asking right now, oh, grant me your spirit. Number three, T, A-P-T, Aptat, A-P-T. Trust a specific promise, trust. And this is the nub of the matter. You're just about to go up to the pulpit you're called upon to preach in the power of another, and you trust a specific promise. And I usually get these promises from my devotions early in the morning. So this morning I was reading Psalm 32, among others. And near the end of Psalm 32, verse 10, it says, Many of the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds those who fear the Lord. And I just paused and said, Okay, that's it for today, Lord. I'm going down to talk to those folks, and I'm going to trust Steadfast love is surrounding me. It's just all over me. Steadfast love is all around me. I'm counting on that. I'm going to believe this promise as I go there to speak. That's what T is. A, A-P-T-A, aptat, act. You just get up in the pulpit and you act. You use your will. You use your mind. You use your hands. You use your imagination and you act. God did make you to be an acting, thinking, willing human being, not to check out and say, Holy Spirit, you do it, then you get all the glory. No, you do it. Work out your salvation, for God is the one who's at work in you, to will and to do his good pleasure. So get up there and preach, because God is at work in you. And the last T, A-P-T-A-T, is thank him. Thank him, which is what I'm going to do in just a moment for helping us here. So let me sum it up where we've been. The theme has been proclaiming Christ in the power of the Spirit. The aim of that proclamation has been that our people would believe him, trust him. That is, that they would treasure him as supremely valuable above all things. The content of preaching, therefore, has to be the display of the riches of Christ. 
centering on the gospel. Third, the manner of preaching, I called it expository exaltation, getting it from that word keruso and knowing that we're called upon to, to think over what we're called to preach. Number four, the preparation, hard thinking and hard praying for the sake of expository exaltation. And number five, the acting of it. Admit you can do nothing. Pray for enablement. Trust a promise. Act in faith. So now let's thank him. Father in heaven, I thank you for sustaining grace in this message. I thank you for these brothers and sisters here. You know their challenges and what they face and what they need. And I ask that you would do exceedingly and abundantly beyond what I could ask or think. Oh God, grant that Christ would be magnified in their lives. Grant that sin would be crucified in their lives. Grant that the people that they're in charge of would come to treasure Christ above all things. Grant that your word would run and triumph in Brisbane and Queensland and all through Australia and around the world. We love you. We want to be faithful in serving you. Thank you for your help. In Jesus' name.